Shall we pray together? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that we have an authority in an age, Lord, that is so often confused. And I do pray, Lord, that these next few moments would be encouraging to our hearts, I ask. Lord, our desire is that your glory would be known. And I pray that even as we walk through this text and we think about a vision of the future city, Lord God, that you would encourage and stir our hearts and show us your glory through this moment, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, my name's Daniel, one of the team here, and it's great to welcome you if it's your first time here. And we are this Sunday closing out a teaching series that we've been walking through for the last term, basically looking at our vision to see the glory of God known across London and the nations. And this vision basically has four parts to it. It has the glory of God. Who is God? Is he glorious? What is that glory like that we know his glory, that we each have a personal encounter, a meeting with God. And then there's the glory of God in London, the city that we have been called to here, and then the nations as we even give today, like to regions beyond, so that other people in nations, in countries where we may never visit or people we may never see, are glad in Jesus because of what we do here. And these last three weeks, we've been almost laying out what would it look like for London to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? Because it's a kind of a slight intangible phrase unless you actually break it down into the physical realities of what it would look like so three weeks ago we looked at a London that would be filled with Christ followers men and women fully alive in Jesus Christ and then secondly last week we looked at a community filled with the Holy Spirit multi-generational multicultural different backgrounds all coming together for one purpose with the presence of God to glorify his name and show a kind of foretaste of what heaven might look like here on earth and today we are looking at our final kind of concrete piece of this vision which is a city filled with culture that reflects the nature and the beauty of God. And by culture, there are two different ways you can take that. You can kind of talk about culture in an office, can't you? And it's like how people relate with one another. It's a good culture or a bad culture. That's more like last week's teaching. When I'm talking about culture this week, I'm talking more concretely about the stuff that we actually do or the stuff that we produce. A lot of us, even today in London, we, we don't produce like physical stuff. There aren't many of us who work with our hands and produce physical stuff. A lot of us work in the service industry, but it's what we actually produce through our work for other people's good. One definition of culture might be this, the manifestations of the collective human achievement. So it's not just you, but it's us together. And London, I think, is a monument in so many ways to the collective achievement of what people can do when they gather together and bring the best and the brightest and say, how can we build a civilization? And we have London around us. People travel from all around the world to come and just watch and, and just take photos of all the random buildings around us because they're incredible. It's culture producing city. And what I want to do this morning is really just encourage us that where you are and what you're doing tomorrow is part of the kingdom of God. Because Christians can so often uh, get discouraged in feeling like there is one way you serve God and that's with the church. And if you're not on a rotor, if you're not on staff, if you're not doing something with a microphone in church on a Sunday, then I'm not really sure that I'm really serving God properly. But when you have a biblical vision of work, actually everything that we are involved in throughout the week is part of the kingdom of God and a mission that God has called us each individually to. And so often we don't connect the dots between our faith and our work. And what I want to do now is connect those dots so that you might leave with a fresh vision of what it means for you to go into your workplace tomorrow and by work I don't just mean the stuff that you get paid to do so if you're at school here work it's the stuff that you do during the week and it's the stuff raising children if you ever try to raise a child, it feels like 10 times more work than an actually paid job. It's hard. It's, the, it's, it's volunteering. It's the stuff that you do with your life during the week when it's not Sunday. That's your work. 
It's the people around you that you're influencing. It's the people, those you are serving. It's those you are contributing to. It's where you spend the bulk of your time and the bulk of your thinking. That is work. And God has a calling in us built around this vision of the future. So what I want to do basically this morning is kind of lay out this vision of the future city and then draw out three implications for our work and how what you do tomorrow can be done for the glory of God. Is that all right? So this city that Sarah read this passage out of with lots of gold and pearls, quite big pearls, walls, etc. In Revelation, we have a vision of the future world. And the Revelation is basically split into four visions that John has marked by this phrase when I was in the spirit and the first vision he has is of the churches of his age in that moment and then he has this vision of heaven and then he has a vision of the wilderness and then he has this final vision of the whole bible and the vision that he has is of this holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and resting on this mountain place and what we've got to do is um, what does it mean for this city to be the last and final picture that we have in the Bible. And let me just pull out three things. Firstly, to say this and to say the very obvious that the future for us is a city. I think, oh, you've just said that. The future is actually a city for us. And for a lot of people, that doesn't sound like good news because you don't want to live in a city. You want to live in the countryside. But just bear with us for a moment. The future is a city. And what this city represents is the culmination of all of our producing that we are doing even now. It is a symbol of civilization in its glorified and final form. Now, I don't know whether the spreadsheet that you produced last week is going to make it into the New Jerusalem or not. Whether that Rembrandt or that piece of music by Bach is going to make it into, I don't know whether any of my sermons are going to make it into like, you know, the Hall of Fame or not. I don't know what kind of products are going to make it into the final city that is going to be there. But us collectively... As human beings, as we produce, as we advance technologically, as we advance with our architecture, as we advance in all sorts of ways, there is going to be a culmination of all of our culture creating that is going to be there in glorified form in a city one day. It's an amazing vision. And this is anticipating what is now a societal trend. So the UN tells us that there are over 5 million people now every month moving into cities. It's incredible. So by the time mid-January comes around, uh, a, a city the size of London will have moved and immersed itself into city life again every two months. Uh, uh, it's incredible. The UN estimates that by 2050, there will be another, an extra, not just 2.5 billion, but an extra 2.5 billion people living in cities. And this prophecy foresees this moment that we are coming together to produce beauty because in cities, it's some of the kind of cutting edge of advance, isn't it? It's why people come and say, I, I, I want, I'm ambitious, I, got, I want to produce, I want to be involved in what's going on. So people move to cities to see the advance of technology and architecture, etc. So the first thing is this, the future is a city. The second, this future has the glory of God. Read this in, in verse uh, 10. He said, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, the symbol of all of our producing in the end times, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And now you've got to, if, if you don't like the idea of living in a city for eternity, just recalibrate your thinking and have a city that is having the glory of God. Imagine people saying like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm traveling to London. Why are you going to London for holiday? Oh, there's Big Ben. You know, there's, they've got the crown jewels. They've also got the glory of God there. I'm going to go have a look at the glory of God. And like that kind of city, this is what it is, the glorified form. So just as one day I'm going to be transported into 
into glory and you will recognize me when you see me in glory. I will be glorified. I don't know what the heck that looks like, but I will be in glorified form. In the same way, London is going to be baptized into glory. So all that we live with now in terms of high living costs, pollution, crime rates, no trees, etc., is going to be baptized into glory and it's going to come out in glorified form because the trajectory of the scriptures is Eden into a city and we have this garden-like city at the end of time where everything is perfect. So please don't freak out if you're a countryside kind of person because the end time is this glory and it, it has the glory of God. It's, it's our culture producing is the glory of God. One commentator says it like this, the city is the visibility of the glory of God. It's amazing. It's going to emanate. It's going to pulsate with the living glory of God. And the third thing is this, that it's the culmination of all of our work. There are all these little bits that come through, these, these descriptions. And Revelation is symbolic. But symbolism isn't just something like you say, oh, it's symbolism, so we kind of sweep it away. Symbolism speaks about the actual reality that is even better. And so you read all these moments where we have symbols. So, for example, we have these most rare jewels like jasper, clear as crystal. What is he speaking about? Jewels just don't come about. You get precious stones, but you don't get jewels just lying around. Jewels are produced through human culture making and work. So the very beginning in Eden, we're told, even in Genesis 2, that there were these precious stones lying around. And when you read Genesis 2, it seems really random. God's saying, here's a garden. Oh, and by the way, I've kind of left all these random precious stones in the soil. And what happened at the end of the story of humanity is that our work has introduced something that turns these precious stones that were lying in the dirt into jewels so that they are useful for humanity. And then he goes on and says more. He talks about these, these, this, this gold. He says in verse 18, I think it is, the walls built with jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. It's amazing. And in verse 21, we read the same thing. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and a street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I don't know much about metalwork, but I know that gold is not transparent. You can't see through gold. So how do you make gold see-through? Well, with a little bit of research, I found out that there is this Japanese art form called Nihonga, if I say that right, my apologies if I've got that totally wrong, where basically you beat metals and you beat them till they're micromillimeters thin until the point where they become translucent. And you place it over other items so that it bathes other items in the color of that precious stone. So there are Japanese artists even today who will beat gold until it's translucent and cover the art so that the whole thing is bathed in this yellow light gold. What we're being told here is that it's not just pure gold. Oh, here's some gold from a cave. We're just going to like throw it into the middle of the city and say, isn't this amazing? We are going to take that gold and we are going to beat it with our human ingenuity and our technology. And we are going to make it so that it reflects some of the glory and the splendor of God and highlights more of his splendor around us. This is the product of our work symbolized in the future city. There's this moment at the end where it says in verse 24 that there are nations who are going to bring their products into this city. It says, by its light, verse 24, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What does it mean for the kings of the earth to bring their glory into this future city? Very simply, their, their glory is their wealth, their products, what their nations have achieved. They bring this to God's people on the last day. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So the commerce and what has been produced by other nations are going to be brought to this final civilization. So one commentator, Richard Moo, says this. He says, the contents of the city will be more akin to our present cultural patterns than is usually acknowledged in discussions of the afterlife. 
Isaiah pictures the holy city as a center of commerce, a place that receives vessels, goods, and currencies of commercial activity. Isaiah is interested in the future of corporate structures and cultural patterns. You ever thought about that? This final revelation picture of the end, and you think, no, no, like we're going to shed cultural and corporate structures. No, there is a final vision where there are corporate structures in place to the glory of God. And he says this, he says, and his vision leads him to what are for many of us very surprising observations about the future destiny of many items of pagan culture. He sees these items being gathered into the holy city to be put to good use there. The question is, do we believe this? Do we believe that what we are doing somehow on a Monday through Saturday is actually somehow building a final civilization that is going to display the glory of God? It's a huge ask because for many of us, what we do through Monday, Friday, Saturday feels very difficult at points. To connect those dots, we're going to come back to that later. But this is the vision that we have And what I want to really just pray is that God stirs a kind of passion in us for this city. Abraham, we're told in Hebrews 11, had a passion for this city that he couldn't see and we can't see right yet. But but, um, Hebrews 11 says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. That is this city. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham lived with this awareness that there was this future civilization that his life was building towards. And yet as he lived his life, he was living in tents in the wilderness and yet he continued to believe God that what he was about was something far more glorious than what he could see. So as you even enter work tomorrow and you think this does not feel glorious, these emails don't feel glorious, this next meeting at 10 a.m. does not feel glorious, you believe God that there is a civilization being built that is to his glory in the new Jerusalem. Amen? This is what we are praying for. So I want to give three ways in which your work, whatever you're doing, through the week is to the glory of God and how it can have the glory of God. Firstly, by serving others. Secondly, by creating plausibility that there is a God of glory in the first place. And thirdly, by simply worshipping God through your work. So firstly, our work is to serve others. We live in a culture that largely seems work as something to get. I go to work so I can earn my money. And if I'm not earning enough or I don't like her, it doesn't feel fulfilling, I'll look for another job. And increasingly, our work lives are getting fragmented because we're flipping between different workplaces, trying to find the thing that really touches the need in my soul. And yet the biblical vision of work is entirely different, where we use the gifts, the talents, the opportunities, the moments that are around us to serve the society around us. John Stott, who's an Anglican vicar, he says this, that work is the expenditure of energy in the service of others, which bring fulfillments to the worker, benefits to the community, and glory to God. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And sometimes we trap that verse in the sense of like, I've helped an old person across the road with their shopping. I've done some good works. I'm really hoping the Shekinah glory is shining through me right now so they give glory to God. But actually what he's talking about is the whole holistic vision of your life, that everything that you are about, your day-to-day in a way gives an um, serves others in such a way that others would give glory to to the God that you worship. God is a worker. Do you know that? God is at work even today. He works 
I'm going to say hard, but he has infinite energy. So I'm not quite sure, you know, translate that into theological terms. But he works a six day week, we're told, and he rests on the Sabbath. And for us to work like God is to be apprenticed by him and to watch him at work. And the amazing thing we have in the scriptures is that we get the opportunity to watch him at work. If you go and become an apprentice, basically the apprentice, you, you, you stand with me, you watch me work and slowly you will pick up what it means to tr- work in this trade. Your trade has a master craftsman and he is God and we can watch him in Genesis 1. So let me just visualize with you and watch God at work in Genesis 1 and infer from that what our work might look like. Because in Genesis 1 we're told God creates the heavens and the earth. He makes everything from nothing. He speaks life and everything comes into being that we have. And yet there is this one issue or multiple issues in many forms that the the, the earth is without form and void so there is there is nothing that is ordered or beautiful or structured around the world and it is empty two issues that God has to resolve and this is resolved through we're told the hovering of the spirit over the the face of the earth and in the first working week that God embarks on we're told that he goes about taking what is not ordered and taking the emptiness and creating order and filling the earth so on day one we're told that God says let there be light and there were lights across the universe he speaks light where the source of all being and life is today without a sun we do not exist we cannot exist and we're built in this kind of very finely tuned kind of point of degree orbiting around the sun so that we can exist as we do today god puts that into place knowing that on the sixth day he is going to create the apex of his creation you and me so that the light on the first day will serve us And on the second day, he looks at the earth and it's just this big swirling watery mess. And so he says, I'm going to separate the waters. I'm going to put some waters down below. I'm going to separate some waters. I'm going to put them in the sky. And I'm going to create this atmosphere in the middle for the apex of my creation coming on the sixth day, you and me, so that they can live and breathe and they will not drown in this swampy, aqua-like environment. So he separates the seas and the heavens. And then he looks at the seas and he says, we've got to do something about this because they're not going to live on like a Kevin Costner water world. I want them to live. They're going to have dry skin. Otherwise, they're going to go all flaky. So they're going to put land in place. So God creates lands and he separates oceans and seas and lakes, etc. So that we can live on the land and inhabit land. And then he puts these two governors in place for the, for the days. So he puts the sun and the moon in place, which creates a rhythm for our lives and our bodies. And if you know anything about biology or sociology, we are built in rhythm. And we have to walk in step with the rhythms that God has given us. Otherwise, we flake out. We go through emotional burnout. Cultures have tried to break this pattern and go for a 10-day working week. And very soon, everything begins to disintegrate because God has built us in patterns to serve us in who we are. And then he takes on the next day and he fills this land that he's created with animals, human beings, and vegetation. Why? To serve us. And then on the last day, we're told that he creates Adam and Eve. Why did God go about this hard-working week? So that he would create an environment that was suitable for you and me so that we could flourish. And then he says this in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and fem- female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful now and multiply and you fill the earth and you subdue it and you have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth so in a sense he passes on his craftsmanship to us in our apprenticeship says now i have done the first working week and now i want you to work with me in continuing to subdue and order and create beauty around us and to fill the earth as we have it in front of us and so that we are given this cultural mandate 
to order the environment around us to serve others like God served us. All science is, in some level, is exploring the intricate ways in which God has designed the universe to serve us. It's crazy. Think, why did God create the universe so big and so intricately with such finely tuned uh, everything so that it would serve us so that we might flourish in this environment? And God says, now you go, you take the resources that are around you so that you can serve others so that they can flourish in their life. So it looks like a teacher, very simply, taking material that feels scattered and disordered and distilling it in such a form that I can teach and enable others to learn so that they might advance maybe beyond the teacher. It looks like a lawyer, for example, taking all sorts of complex laws and seeing an injustice that's done or seeing a way in which two parties need to come and be reconciled and finding ways in which ordering this and filling documents so that people can find a way of flourishing and moving on from sometimes the emotional turmoil of a broken relationship. It means things like counsellors. Counselors do, do what God is doing, apprenticed by God. They're simply taking a disordered mind, somehow that is confused and, and uncertain, and helping that person with God so that they can bring order and fill their mind with truth so that they might flourish. This applies to every single thing. If you're a parent, you are creating order out of chaos. And I know it feels like chaos to order to chaos again, but then to order again, but to but it's this moment where you are creating an environment, you're creating soft corners in the living room, you're putting all the china out of sight, you know, you're putting like stair gates at the top of the stairs, that is doing a Genesis 1 so that you can create an environment so these children can flourish, become adults and grow and be all that God meant them to be, amen? There's this amazing verse in um, Psalm 72, it just captured my attention. It says this, May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the fields. Mm. What an incredible vision. Mm. That when you go to work, part of your highs, I am praying that with the little bit that I have, I'm going to create an environment that other people can blossom in this city that other people can flourish, that they can be all that God has called them to be, that their full potential that God has woven into their soul will be expressed in their lifetime through what I am about. I would love Trinity Church London to be about that. Every time we disperse from this place, there is a sense where people come into contact with us, wherever we are, that I feel like I'm a little bit better in who I am because I've been in contact with you. Somehow your work, the way you do your work, the product that you're doing, who you are in your work, as you do your work, is helping me become increasingly me. There are some environments, you know, when you feel like slightly squashed, you ever had those environments? It might be a work environment, it might be a, a relationship, and you kind of feel like, you're like you have your wings clipped a little bit. You've been in those? And there are some environments, there are some relationships where you feel like with this person, in this environment, in this team, I feel like I can be myself and I can breathe. Part of our role, I would suggest, is creating environments around us where other people can breathe and be themselves and find God for themselves and find all that God has put in their hearts and express that so that the next person might be blessed along the way. So firstly, we serve God and as we serve God, serve others, glory gets given to God. Secondly, we work in order to create plausibility in people's minds that a God of glory might even exist in the first place. Let me just wind back for a second, because we're living in a moment, aren't we, where people generally are getting harder to the idea of the Christian God. The God of the Bible, to most people, does not feel glorious. Some of you are in the room today, and you might feel the same. You've been invited by a friend, you're not a Christian, you're just exploring faith, and you're thinking, you're talking about all this stuff, but I don't get it, it, feels, it just feels irrelevant to me. I was there, as I was a teenager, God in his glory, if you were to say, God's glorious, it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's compelling, I'd have like, I slept through church service. I literally, there was a hard pew in front of me, got there like that with my mom and dad. I was like, this is just boring. I do not understand it. And then people are increasingly feel like, hey, do you know, I don't know, like he might be a nice guy. He's nothing to do with me today. We need to create with our work, I would suggest, an increasing framework where people could actually believe 
that I'm, I might not believe you right now, but I can see increasingly that he might just be real. There was a day, like in the 40s and 50s, Billy Graham, a lot of you, most of you have heard Billy Graham, he used to tour around the country, countries, preaching in stadiums. And he was an American guy. And he would always, he was a very simple preacher. But basically his preaching was this, the Bible says, and he would just tell you what the Bible said. And he would wave his Bible around in front of tens, twenties, thirties, forties of thousands of people. The Bible says, and he would get very passionate and he would call people down the front and people would amazingly respond and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And there are thousands of amazing stories of people doing that. Because simply he said, the Bible says, and God anointed that word and people came to the front and says, I'm following Jesus now. <laughs> That kind of evangelism most probably is not going to work in today's culture because we have moved decades along now. So if I stood up in a stadium, firstly it would be empty. And if I just said, the Bible says, everyone would think, I don't care what the Bible, like who cares what the Bible says? Because the God that you're talking about, I don't even know if he exists. Did Jesus, was Jesus a real person? You say, I'm a sinner. I don't feel like a sinner. How do you define sin anyway? There are 101 different questions that would immediately come up to people's minds. <clears throat> So how, how do we create this kind of framework where a possibility of a God who created everything, where we might actually have fallen short of his glory, might be real? One of the main ways that we can do that is through our work. Bear with me. Because through our work, we express the glory of God. We express the nature of God, the character of God, and we do what Genesis 1 was doing in the first place, and we create order where there is chaos. There has been this verse that's often puzzled me, but I feel like I'm getting more revelation in now. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 to 4. Let me just read these verses to you. It says, First of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And I've often kind of heard that prayer, like, okay, we've got to pray that we live in a quiet society, which I've always felt was like disjointed from the rest of the New Testament. Because you read people like Paul and Peter, they didn't seem to be like their highest priority is I want a quiet life in the suburbs and just going to, you know, do my thing and then die and go to heaven. It felt like they actually quite liked to raise a bit of trouble sometimes. For the name of so how does this like prayer that you might have a quiet life and how does that work? It comes with verse three. It says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So put these two things together that Paul is praying that society might be rightly ordered in such a way and he seems to suggest that as society is rightly ordered it creates a framework for belief so that people could actually put their trust in Jesus Christ because isn't God the one who creates order and systems and beauty and harmony and rhythm and togetherness and reconciliation and when that is in the environment that society lives in it says hey did you know this is all because of God people might just listen. So when we're in a day of Brexit and everyone is seemingly getting more fractured and more fighting, we are to be the peacemakers. And as we make peace, we're told in the Beatitudes, we might see God at work because we create plausibility. People want to say, your gods might just be true. God is a beautiful God, a compelling God. And part of our work is to express the beauty of God through all that we're doing. And that doesn't mean that you need to be an artist with a paintbrush to do that because there's ethical beauty in justice being done. There is a relational beauty in how you treat others. There is an aesthetic beauty as well and the ways in which we do things. But there is a beauty in which we are to produce with our work that creates plausibility in people's minds to say, maybe, just maybe, there is a God of beauty out there. There is a philosopher called Roger Scruton, and he's done some amazing, interesting, interesting work around the world. He's not a Christian, I don't think, but he has this passion to awaken people's interest in the world. And he says we need to re-engage with this whole issue of beauty and be beauty producers. Because he says this, he says, beauty tells us that we are at home in the world, that the world is already ordered in our perceptions as a place fit for the lives of beings like us. 
So if we are living in a, in a world that is continually fractured and not beautiful, and we know that we are made in the image of God and we're designed for beauty, we will continually feel this is not my home. I'm not made to be here. But if we can produce increasingly, incrementally, it might feel millimeter by millimeter, a world that has beauty in it, relational, ethical, aesthetic beauty, we are helping people understand that there is a God of beauty out here who has designed you for this world, who has made you to live on this earth, who has made you to be in this city, and you can know him. There are little pockets. I came across this story just a few weeks ago about Steve Jobs, who's died, the Apple guy. And he made friends through a random circumstance with Yo-Yo Ma, the musician. And through this friendship, he'd heard him play and he wanted to, at him to play at his wedding and Yo-Yo Ma couldn't. So another, as it does in these circles, I guess, Yo-Yo Ma said, I'll come around your house. Just imagine that. And I will play you the piece that I would have played if I had gone to your wedding. So Steve Jobs got this private concert with Yo-Yo Ma. Can you imagine this? And Steve Jobs is not a believer in Jesus. And he said this, he says, you playing is the best argument I've ever heard for the existence of God, because I don't really believe a human alone can do this. Just a moment of beauty producing creates a little bit of plausibility for a God who orders in such a things in such a way that it touches the deepest part of our souls. And it also simply means producing things that reflect God's strength, his glory and his power. When you do things that enable and help others, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're an accountant that produces accounts that help you as a business to, to carry on as a business, if you're in these kind of environments and you actually produce something that physically actually helps people, you are creating just a chink in people's minds that maybe there is a God out there who looks after me and is helping me in my life. How many times have you heard stories of Christians being at the workplace and helping and praying that God would help someone that they're involved in? And God does work through ordinary means, through their work, and they are grateful and they say something like, isn't it a strange coincidence that you prayed and something happened and, and suddenly there is this, just this opening in their minds that maybe there is a God out there who helps me and serves me and is looking out for me. In our work, as we produce things around us, we are creating plausibility that God is strong and he is glorious and he does care and he does want to help and save people. Thirdly, we work and we worship as we work. So what we do during the week, it impacts our souls. I think we all know that, don't we? Sometimes we get to Friday and we think, I'm not feeling great. Sometimes we get to Friday, the project's being tipped off, the team's really happy with you, you feel amazing, your targets have been met and smashed, and you go into the weekend, feel amazing. They're amazing weekends. A lot of the time, you feel like, gosh, that has really impacted me, and not always. Sometimes our soul gets reflected in our work. Because God has made us to be intimately connected, soul and work, work and soul. It's fascinating because in the Hebrew scriptures, the word for work, avodah, is actually the same as worship, which is avodah. So when we're told that we are to work the land, we're told literally to worship did you get what I mean? When Joshua says, I, as for me and my household, he makes his declaration between a congregation a bit bigger than this. He says, as for me and my household, we are going to Avadar the Lord. You could say we're going to serve the Lord, we're going to work with and for the Lord, or we're going to worship the Lord. They are the same concepts that we work with. So that when we are about our work, the very work itself is worship and can lift us to God. Has anyone ever had a moment at work where everything seems to be slotting into place. Please let someone say like one, one moment in one lifetime, one hand. I need one hand, like Billy Grail, like, there we go, there's a, there's, a, there's a hand, thank you. There are, there, are, there are fleeting moments, aren't there, 
where it feels like you've, you've something is involved in even email sometimes, amazingly, in God's redemptive power. You feel like just there's been an understanding, there's been a chemistry, there's been a back and forth, something has been produced that neither of you thought would be produced and it's better than either of your minds put together and something comes out at the end of a process and there is this sense of this openness and just like, God, you are good. Because work, work in its best sense is meant to open our souls up to God. It's, it's, meant, it's meant to open us. It's meant to be a moment of worship. If you've been in this worship moment, if you're a Christian just singing, I don't know about you, I love the moments where we sing worship to Jesus because I feel my soul just opening up again. You know, you work, you get through the week and you're, it's kind of, you've got to get stuff done and you get your head down and you have these moments where you just lift up your head and you lift up your eyes and you see Jesus and your soul breathes and you reconnect with God. Our work is supposed to be that. It's a high calling, I know. Peter Lathart, who's a, a commentator, he says this. For some of you, if you're more on the accounting side of things, you might not like this. If you're like the artistic side of things, you'll probably love it. I don't know. Here it is. Anyway, I read this, his commentary on Revelation, and I found it profound. He was talking about how we get clothed by God with royal robes, with white robes. And he points out that, that robing and clothing is actually a, a, a product of us, accumulatively. You might say, I'm not in the clothing industry, but actually we all have this intricate part to play in culture producing, and God clothes us with the culture that we make. And he says this, clothed, we put on wings. Clothing being the first layer of culture in Genesis, the first culture producing thing that we take on ourselves, clothes. And he says, we may conclude culture raises human beings from earth to heaven in worship. And that every moment you produce something individually or as a team or collectively, you are, as it were, clothing the people around you so that they might likewise worship God with you. You are bringing increasing clothing to them. It's an incredible picture, I think, that every time you sit with them or you're in a team, you're in a sense, as you serve them, you're saying, I want to clothe you with culture that will raise you to heaven. Because when God comes and he creates culture, we take our human form in fig leaves and he says, no, I'm, I'm going to grant you clothes that actually bring you into my presence. They're going to be a redemptive um, form for you so that you can know me. As we follow God and we clothe others, we are helping them follow and worship God as well. I know these are big concepts. Like these will take decades to get our head around, but we are involved in the worship of God as we pursue him. Our problem is a lot of the time we use our work to keep God away from us. How many times do you hear of people just getting their heads stuck in hours and hours of work so they don't have to deal with the issues in their hearts? How many times do you hear of stories, people going decades and wishing that I'd spent more time with family, relationships, with my soul? taken from those moments when we took the fig leaves at first in Genesis and we should have used our culture making to serve and to help others worship and yet we used it to avoid God. And then we have this moment in the Tower of Babel where we create this huge tower, not for the glory of God, but so that we might rest in our own accomplishments and say we are independent beings and do not need God. And then we have this ultimate picture of our culture keeping God at bay in the cross of Jesus Christ where we take this culture making moment where we could have used wood for good and yet we use it to literally physically kill God himself and keep him at arm's length because we don't want to deal with the things that are in our soul and God says as we come to that God whom we have crucified we can find a flipping in our soul so that we can actually find God in our work find God in his resurrection power and worship him in the workplace and not keep him at bay this is the calling that we have and I just want to close with this note and I'm closing because some of you might be rolling your eyes thinking like this is like I don't know what you're talking about Daniel because my work is as far from the glory of God as the east is from the west my work does not feel glorious and let me say two things firstly there is a Genesis 3 and we are living in a broken world that where the now and not yet is a reality 
Revelation is a picture of the future glorious world. We are living in a world that is becoming increasingly glorious, but is still broken and fractured and feels like it's a grind sometimes. That is a reality. But the second thing is this, that as we pick up our cross as Christians, and as we walk into the workplace with the glory of God, and we have a fresh vision of what God can do with this, as we are willing to walk into environments that do feel like mini deaths sometimes, and they do, don't they, at work? We can actually see the possibility of resurrection power at work around us in unexpected ways. So Jesus Christ, when he walked on the face of the earth, he spent most of his life as a carpenter, working a trade, working as someone who was learning to make products for his local community. Who knows whether some of Jesus' like tables, like one Jesus table will make it into the New Jerusalem. I don't know, just, it's, we have no idea. Maybe, but maybe technologically advanced, so like, no, we've got better tables down the line now. Sorry, Jesus, that doesn't, could have sound blasphemous. I didn't mean it to sound blasphemous, but you know what I'm meaning in the context of everything, and you know my heart, Jesus. <laughs> and yet he willingly walked and had a career transfer because of a walk with his father where he said, now I'm going to down tools, I'm going to teach and preach for a few years, and I'm going to be the recipient of all the evil of culture, all the brokenness that you may feel this week and next week. I'm going to receive it in my body on the cross. And when we see Jesus hanging on that cross, we see him taking on all the worst of our culture all the worst of what we do at a micro level in the workplace and at a macro level. And we're so aware, aren't we, in these days of some of the, the corruption in the workplace. All of that has been taken on Jesus Christ on the cross. We're so aware of the ways we're treating the world now and how the ways in which we're not living sustain, all of that's taken on Jesus. All the injustice in the way that bosses treat employees taken on Jesus, all of the lies behind the scenes taken, all of the exhaustion taken on Jesus. And in his death, resurrection power gets released so that you might walk into work tomorrow with the possibility of the power of God at work around you. Amen. Amen. Knowing this thing because of the resurrection, that everything you do is not in vain now. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Nothing that you do tomorrow is in vain. Isn't that an amazing promise? You can hold on to that. You might feel like my work's going downhill right now, but nothing that I do in Jesus' name is in vain and it will find its final resting place in the new Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Let's stand. Let's pray. If I can invite the band back up. And let me just invite you in these next few moments that for God to transform some of your thinking around work. And let me just as a first invitation that if you would like your mind to be changed, if you know you need help with your work, to have even a, even a taste, a tinge of the glory of God, can I just invite you just in this moment to lift up your hands to the Lord? in whatever way you feel comfortable, but just lift your hands out to the Lord as a way of expressing your heart's desire to work as worship, to serve others, to make you, Lord, plausible, that you do exist, that you are beautiful, that you are strong to save. And just bring before the Lord in these moments now some of the people that you work with, they might be your children, they might be a boss, they might be a colleague, might be a team. And some of the difficult parts and some of the good parts, just bring them before the Lord. Spirit of God, I pray that you would transform thinking Lord, that you would have already done it and that you will continue to do this, I pray. Holy Spirit, would you connect dots even now, Lord, instinctively in souls between people's faith and their work. 
And Holy Spirit, I pray that even as people are at work tomorrow, you would suddenly remind people, whether they're with an individual or in front of a computer or commuting, Lord, would you bring revelation and encouragement, I pray, to highlight what people are doing for your kingdom's sake, for your civilization's sake, for glory's sake, I ask. Now, I do sense this morning that for some people, God wants to refresh your spirit in, in work. He wants just to give you a, a fresh energy, a fresh vision, and he wants for your soul to create that picture of the future where you feel like your week is just this boring weekly cycle. He wants to show you that your work is headed somewhere and it is bearing fruit. So if, can I just ask just in this moment, people's got their eyes closed. It's not for me, for anyone else. If you know that you want a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit for your workplace, just to raise your hand up high just to say to the Lord that I want your Holy Spirit at work in my life. Just do that now. We're told in the scriptures to lift holy hands to the Lord, just as a way of praying. The Holy Spirit brings refreshment. And I pray Lord for truth, for the presence of the Spirit to bring refreshment right now to these souls, Lord. Pray for revelation. Pray that people would see through emails, see through people and moments and difficult situations to see your glory, I pray. Father, would these men and women be beauty producers, power producers, help producers, I pray, expressing your glory in the world around them, I ask. Pray for wholehearted disciples of Jesus in the workplace, I pray from this place. I pray even would people tomorrow see something different in us, I ask. Would they see a sense, a fresh ease, a fresh peace about us, I ask something different in our face and in our countenance, even in our tone, even in the way that we treat people. I pray that people would notice, Lord, and a, a little opening in people's souls would be made for the gospel, I ask in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Let's just stay in this place. We're gonna worship as we close. But just as we open up our souls here. I'm just going to ask us to just open up our souls to the Lord and ask the Lord that this openness to the presence of God would be carried through into the workplace. That as we worship God in the workplace, we might have moments of revelation, not of clamping down, but of opening up to sense his presence. Thank you, Lord.